Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith and well-being. We're so glad you're listening. In this episode, we'll be picking up with where we left off last week with decisions. We'll take a deeper dive into some methodology, what should and shouldn't go into a decision-making process, how we can be empathetic and take stock of how our choices affect others, and we'll dive into Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about all of this. Here again are Michael McCord, Lindsay Geist, and Evan DeYoung. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Not Alone podcast, the podcast that likes to let you look at faith and well-being, mental health, and some wonderful tangents and rabbit trails all the way in between. We hope that you are doing so wonderfully wherever you are listening to this. And I just want to say, why don't we just take a moment of peace wherever we are? So here you go. You listen to the podcast. Just kind of relax. You got this. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, you're going to be just fine. And you're doing a good job. I just don't think we hear that enough. So, Lindsay, Michael, welcome back as we kick off part two of How to Make Decisions. You guys want to say hi to the peoples? Hey, everybody. It's good to be back once again. Glad to be here once again and continue our conversation on decision-making. Because we don't have to do that anymore. Nope. Never, ever. It's, All decisions this are gone. Is a, this is a retrospective look on what it was like to make decisions. Oh, yeah. It's like when you talk to somebody who's retired. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I got to go to that. They're like, well, I remember when I had to work, but I'm retired. Uh, today, I got physical, uh, injured my knee, and I'm in physical therapy. And when I was signing up for my next appointment, which is hopefully my last one, um, she was like, oh, you know, I told her my preferred time and, and she's like, you know what? We have a lady. She's retired. She tells us if anybody wants my spot ever, you just give it to them. I got all the time in the world. And so I got that woman's spot today. So I helped her help me by her freedom of being retired. And I thought to myself, what would that be like to be able to just say, I can move anything, anytime, anywhere. No big deal. Is that when you see somebody in a hurry in the grocery store and you have like 30 items and they have two items and you kind of walk up and you were definitely in front of them and you're like, it's okay, you can go ahead. And then they do the compliment like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. You know, the Southern decline, whatever is offered to you, which is an interesting phenomenon. You know what I'm talking about though, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Like somebody could be like, I really want to give you a million dollars. Oh, and- no. And in oh, your no, brain, no. you'd be like, mm, you have to. You have to decline at least once. And then when they offer again, then you can say yes. That's how it works in the South. You know, and I I, I know this this is a tangent. I know Lindsay's rolling her eyes at us right now. But <laughs> one of the things I learned as being a clergy person in the South is learning how to say thank you and just accept people's generosity and kindness that I realized somewhere along the way, like, I think I, I, I grew up thinking, oh, no, I cannot accept anybody's gift or kindness. Uh, I must, you know, first resist it before accepting it. But but I learned that if for some people, that's the way they like to express their love and appreciation. And the best thing you can do for them in that moment is just to thank them from the bottom of your heart and accept their gift and not not feel like you have to say no. And I think that... That was a really big learning moment for me that that sometimes gift giving 
um, is just as important as gift receiving. I know there's like a song about that and we talk about that at Christmas and all that, but it actually is true. So uh, anyway, I mean, here's Michael's nugget on gift giving. Thank you is a hard thing for all of us to say. Well, and I mean, I think we could in the episode, honestly, right now, I know that's not, uh, not our topic for the day, but <laughs> it's, it's true. Right. I mean, just to say thank you and just actually accept a gift and without feeling guilty or I feel like you have to return it. Just like be grateful. Mm-hmm. But accepting a gift and choosing to accept a gift is a decision. It is. Thank you for that segue. Yes. I mean, thank it you. It is. It is, it is a decision. So as we've reflected on our conversation last week, we talked a lot about what decisions are. We talked about what they can do to frustrate us, you know, how you get a little bit tired of just making decisions sometimes, how you can get stuck. Uh, as we kind of reflect on last week, what, what are kind of some updated thoughts from We've had a week's passage of time from recording last week to this week. Um, I think for me, I really enjoyed this uh, tool that you gave us from Harvard, Lindsay, around the values and the cards. What was mm-hmm. the name of the tool again? I, it actually isn't labeled here. I'm rustling the paper it's, to prove that. It's just it. a value sort tool. I mean, if you Google value sort tool, uh, it will come up. That's kind of the broad language in the clinical world. And so what it does is that it lists a number of different values that somebody may have, and you can go through the list and pick the few that are the most important to you. We all as human beings have different values that we elevate above others. Um, And my values of how I make decisions and the things that are most important to me may be different than Michael's and may be different than Evan's. And so that's how the tool can be really helpful to kind of learn about yourself of what are some of the driving forces behind uh, the influence, like what's influencing your decisions. Totally. There is a guy named James March, who was a researcher and like a, a teacher. He's kind of a professor, I think. And he wrote a book that I was referenced in a podcast that I was listening to the other day. Uh, and his book is really just a collection of lectures uh, and it's called Primer, a Primer on Decision Making. And he's a gross oversimplification from someone not qualified to give a summary of his work. I will now say this. Uh, mm-hmm. he, um, his kind of, what it boiled down to was uh, we, some of the ways that we look at decisions is that we say, okay, what is this decision? Uh, what are my values and who am I, right? And then if I am this person that has these values, what decision would that person make? And in a lot of ways, we'll externalize that in decision-making, and it's how we kind of reinforce who we want to be based on decisions. And it kind of explains how we can change our minds, too, because you have those moments where in life you realize, oh, I've, I've been acting like this a little bit, right? You can kind of... You know, usually it's like in the shower, right when you're falling asleep, you know, in your brain, <laughs> kind of kicks off and goes, did you realize that you've been putting off stressful decisions and now they've all piled up? Look at you. Look at you trying to fall asleep when all these things are just sitting there. I'm not a good faller or sleeper. I don't know if you guys are. Do you guys fall asleep real easy? Yes, instantaneously. Are you yep. serious? Yep. 
I don't know what that says about us, Michael, that we must be overly tired all the time. But no, I mean, I remember almost nothing uh, in even the couple minutes leading up to me falling asleep. Mm -hmm. Same here. I don't understand. I, I feel I feel very alone right now, but it makes more sense because you guys are both vastly more productive individuals than I am. <laughs> or we run our tank until we are absolutely at the end. Um, but it might just be that. I mean, I honestly, I just love going to sleep. No it's way. my favorite thing. Like I, I could, I could go to sleep. I don't care so much about sleeping. Like I don't need to have like long. <laughs> long bouts of sleep but that stage where you're like i watched uh the georgia game and it was a sleeper this past week but um uh anyway it i, I just like if you're laying in bed and you're just there and you kind of getting that that transient state between awake and sleep that's my favorite place so i just love to be there i do not ha- like that's the worst place because i just think about how i want to be asleep wow Okay. Yeah. Anyways, so when we're talking about decision making, uh, whether you should go to bed or not, right? Um, interesting thing that I heard, not to go on another rabbit trail, um, have you heard of uh, revenge sleep procrastination? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's when we feel like we don't have enough hours in our day that are our own, and so we will stay up even later. Um, it has to do with us feeling like we're out of control. And so it's our attempt to take back control of our own lives. So in some ways, it is a, it's an unconscious decision that we are making uh, that harms us in the end uh, because we stay up way too late. But it's our way to fight against the, where the rest of our time has gone during our day. And so we stay up way too late doing mindless things because we're kind of angry that we didn't have more time during the day. <laughs> You just described my entire existence past middle school. <laughs> well, and I, I, I mean, to the to the point of today's conversation, I, I have I have experienced that with individuals who 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 feel like either a they they have such a singular, you know, huge decision that needs to be made mm. that. Um, Either, either they'll just spend the entire day and entire night like just doing frivolous things to avoid making the decision or on, on the other hyper extreme, you know, making lists after list after list and then flipping back and forth and just allowing the anxiety to overcome them. And, and so they end up in that same kind of which, of course, uh, in either scenario only heightens the pressure on the decision and. And so it's it's like the decision itself becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like you, it just, it, there's no winning in those kinds of like double bind situations that you put yourself mm-hmm. in. Oh, yeah. Well, that that's, that's good because we have researched some uh, decision-making tools and strategies for how to make decisions for individuals and groups. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to toss out the decision-making tool. I'll tell you a little bit about what it is, and then I'm going to get some instant thoughts based on your experience. Now, everybody, they don't know what I'm about to say, so they don't know if I'm going to make a food analogy and get us off topic. The odds are in our favor. No, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Okay. 
So one decision-making tool that you can use, especially in brainstorming, to figure things out. One, the biggest thing that I uh, have read and would say from my personal experience is that you should have a snack and or a little bit of caffeine whenever you are thinking about making a decision because you need to make sure that you're not cranky or upset about something because you're hungry or because you're caffeine deprived. And research has shown that good snacks and caffeine aid in individual and group decision-making processes. So it is, a, it is a, an academic and research scientific best practice to eat a snack and have a little bit of caffeine when you got stuff that you need to do, especially with friends. Okay, so I'm laughing real hard about this one because uh, we have a family rule uh, in the Geist family that any major gigantic decision that needs to be made, um, you either need to go to lunch or go to happy hour and talk it out and process it before you make that decision. So it's like every um, time one of us has taken a new job, moved, um, you know, even finding a new apartment, like I would look at a bunch in a new city and then we would say, okay, let's go eat lunch. Um, occasionally a snack or, you know, it's like, okay, let's go sit down and have a glass of wine and talk it out. Uh, decision to act race. That, it? <laughs> that could be a thing. That could be a thing, but for real, our family, um, has this philosophy that you always need to sit down. And part of that is pausing long enough um, to really process it out uh, before you make a significant decision. I love that. I love ritual. I, I, I like, mm -hmm. I just love anything that has like ritual and tradition that isn't stifling. Like I like little traditions. I don't like like tra traditions that are stuffy or oppress people, but I do love little dumb traditions like I have a dollar and when I play darts with my friends, we play the game called the dollar game and you put a dollar up on the dartboard and you have to stand far back and you have to throw it and hit it in the dollar. And every round you have to throw it really close, really far and from the line. And then if you win the dollar game at the end of the night, you get, you're the victor and I keep a Sharpie and you have to sign the dollar. So I have this dollar now that just has, is riddled with holes. <laughs> From, from darts, but then it has all the signatures of all the friends and places that I've been and people that I've played with who have won the dollar game. And it's, so it's ritual tradition. Like it's like a trophy. It doesn't mean anything. Anyways. Okay. Here's your first. Just, I just want to say on behalf of the podcast, we do not endorse the federal offense of, of damaging federal bills. Oh, defacing federal currency. Yeah. 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 Well, Which, I'm just we're making not, it more. We don't condone the <laughs> defacing of federal currency. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> No, but so, I love that. I mean, I think I think what you're getting to, Lindsay, is is one of those, and and I think Evan, to the point of food, um, any of those tools get people. I, I my experience is that people get very tunnel visioned. the The bigger the decision or the more complex decision, they go they get smaller and smaller mm -hmm. and smaller. And so, <clears throat> I think that introducing food and and because because along with that comes anxiety. People stop eating. And when they stop eating, they stop drinking, they get more grumpy and they're more focused. And mm -hmm. so it becomes, it comes sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. And then what you've introduced, Lindsay, is the ritual part of that and out to talking it out. That's a big, mm -hmm. I think a really helpful tool is to, to talk it out with people that you, you love and trust. Yeah. I mean, it keeps you, this tool keeps you from being hangry. 
And it also uh, introduces a pause in essence, uh, that anytime we can create a pause, it will take us out of our loop and our endless cycle of anxiety and worry and asking what ifs um, and struggling to make that decision. Well, yeah, yeah. you oh. as a social worker, you do, you, you meet with people, do therapy with people. And mm-hmm. I, I do coaching with uh, leadership coaching and, you know, we know that like in our practice, in my practice, at least it's when, when someone has to voice in their own words, what they're feeling to an outside party who doesn't quite understand the, the nuanced information that you're in, in all of a sudden, when you're having to put everything that you're feeling into words, it, it does its own sort of heavy lifting, if you will, mm-hmm. in kind of understanding the, at least under making sense of the problem and maybe also finding some potential solutions they hadn't thought of before. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Our first tool that we're going to review. Well, actually, this is now our second because going. Yeah, I thought food was the ritual. Yeah, food is one. No, that's a strategy. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Listen, I'm just creating distinction. Everything's okay. Lindsay looked at me like, "Why did you say that? What's the difference between a strategy and a tool?" But keep going. I'm tracking with you. Oh, don't, Michael, don't get started. He's not. He's listening to you. Okay. Okay, Next one. All right. If you have to make a decision, especially a big decision, ask yourself, if I had to make this decision in 10 seconds, what would I do? Or if I had to solve this problem in 10 seconds, what would I do? What are your thoughts? So in my group facilitation work, when I'm working with an organization that that is trying to solve a problem uh, that feels insurmountable or overly complex, one of the tools I use is something we call, we call speed dating uh, and really creates this sort of high pressure, quick like what's your gut reaction um, and and don't overanalyze it. Don't think about it. Just put it up on a board. And then, and then an, another group will encounter that same thing that you could sort of your, your, your mind throw up, whatever you just kind of put up there, they'll start to make sense of it from a different perspective. And what we found when we do that is that, that a lot of times creativity uh, and honestly, you know, decision-making is really about creativity it's, 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 ta- mm-hmm. it's, it's sense-making. You've got this complex scenario with multivariant uh, influences and you're trying to like, what's the best thing for me? And what we're looking for is some kind of creative solution. And creativity is often blocked by over-processing information. So you just, you just keep running it through, you're overthinking. And so you're missing all the things, all the other alternative solutions. And so that's the idea of speed is one of those tools we use to get people to to let go of their thoughts and just put it up on the board. And, and that's really, it's been a really helpful tool for some of those places where people feel stuck. I don't know if you used that before, Lindsay, what your thoughts about pushing people to make decisions quickly? Um, we haven't or at least done theor- a- theoretical decisions. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't I say that make the actual decision yeah, in 10 in seconds, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, we don't often do fast things. In counseling. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, no, counseling's a, a journey. Um, and normally... I'm all uh, about the destination. What's funny is we really <laughs> push against like a quick fix. However, um, I do think that what boils down to like that fast decision making of if you had 10 seconds, what do you do? Um it does force you to think outside the box. Um, oftentimes my version of that kind of for homework in a slower paced version, 
um, homework after a counseling session is, okay, if you feel like there's only two choices um, and you're trying to decide between that, you have to go home and write 10 options that are gray other options that could be in that spectrum. And they could be bizarro and things you might never choose. Uh, But you have to write down what choices do actually exist out there. So that's the way that we kind of pull in the creativity of it just in a slower version of it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a similar, similar approach. And it's different when you're working on an individual situation too, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I should say that in our process, uh, when working with groups, we don't just, that's not the decision that's up on the board, but but it's it's getting past that roadblock that sometimes mm-hmm. people have, especially systems and organizations will have a roadblock. We can never, as an organization, we'll never do this. We just can't. We're never going to fix this problem. It's been here forever and ever, and it's unsolvable. And then, and then they can actually have solutions inside of their brains that they didn't even know they had mm-hmm. because because the we can't do it was overdriving what they could do. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I do wonder to some extent how posturing to be able to say, because, you know, creativity helps with problem solving, but creativity is we have to do some interesting things to unlock the creativity in our inside of ourselves much of the time. And I think a lot of the time we don't view the fact that we're having a hard time making the decision as a challenge that we should approach. Like we, we think that like making the decision is a challenge, but our inability to make the decision and feel like there's clarity is a problem to be approached and can kind of be broken down into a sub problem, um, which I think I like that because it gives me personally permission to say part of the problem is that I'm having a hard time making this decision. So I need to put that in a, in a box. And then I also need to put the decision in a box too, but I need to figure out like a little bit about where that's going to happen. Um, and I think uh, this next tool is a little more analytical a little less applied. It's a different type of creativity for our math-brained, kind of more structured folks. Yeah, those kinds of things are going to... This this one may pop off the page for you. If you're a doodler, um, this one may not be for you, but I think it's really good. This is a decision-making matrix. So what you do is you put in all the different factors and outcomes and desires into this, essentially a spreadsheet, then you ascribe a point value to each thing, positives, negatives, everything out, and then it spits out generally just like kind of with a little algorithm, a little bit of math, uh, what the optimal decision could potentially be based on how you weighted the outcomes. Now, where this gets stacked up even crazier is when everyone does it. So if you have 10 people who all answer the questions as in a matrix, and then it spits out different values for all of them, then you're able to have something that's third party, that's more tangible to talk about. And so you're talking about the factors that go into the decision together compared to just butting your heads on decision. Now that would be for a group, but for an individual, kind of that weighted score, I think can be helpful and freeing for some people. What do you guys think? Would you ever do a decision-making matrix? So, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I, I, I've, I think I mentioned this before, but I, I serve on a number of, of college trustees. And just to take all of you a little bit behind the curtain, there is something called a financial aid matrix. And we, uh, at our, we as being our colleges, when a student applies for college, um, you can imagine one of the things, you, you got lots of decisions. You got to like decide whether or not 
they are able to be a student here? Do they have the academic uh, prowess to be here? Do they have the ability financially to be here? And then if we if we grant them, you know, admittance, then we have to financial aid package them. So you have to like make a decision about how much financial aid can we give this student? And so there's this entire matrix of, of how you land someone in a quadrant about how much need. And there's, it's a fascinating area of research, but, but I think that's that, what, what, what that does for us is, and I'm going to coin a phrase here is sort of this dissociative, uh, calculus, mm-hmm. like this dissociative processing. So you're dissociating yourself from the situation and in this case, the individual. So you're not, you're not looking at, at Mary who's applied, who you, who you, you actually interviewed and granted admittance to, you're looking at some data in that, that kind of data analysis allows us to sort of this dissociative analysis allows us to take some of our personal emotion that's wrapped up in all of this and look at just something from an analytical lens, which I think is always a valuable process uh, because, you know, it helps us to see things we weren't seeing when, when it was so much closer to us. And so I think it's a, I think it's an interesting process. I don't know how you do that with, um, you know, something like I'm, should I take this new job or should I stay at home with my firstborn child or, or should I date this person? Like those, those, those a little bit more, a little bit more nuanced, more emotionally rooted decision-making processes. I, I think it'd be interesting to see how you do it. Lindsay, do you, do you, I do think you have a matrix? I, I mean, I don't use a decision-making <laughs> matrix. Lindsay, uh, I could see you using one. Like I know I I'm, do love a strong color code and uh, Excel yeah. spreadsheet <laughs> and exact, things like exactly. that. I'm going to hang I'm, wallpaper. What kind of wallpaper? And I felt like Lindsay might have like a matrix to help decide. Yeah. Um, I think that what's really hard about a decision-making matrix is, um, in some ways it's permission granting for us to, as you said, Michael, dissociate from something. Um, it, it gives us permission to not, uh, look at people as people, um, in, kind of the ramifications of things. So I think sometimes it can be really helpful because our bias isn't involved. And at the same time, I think that it's a way for us to remove ourselves from thinking through how the domino effect of our one decision Mm -hmm. is that something could really harm somebody, but we go, well, it was just weighted that way. It was the best decision. And then we can get really defensive because we don't want to think through that there is an emotional component and a real life component as well. What, what I think I hear you saying is this might be a good tool, but it's not the only tool that, that it, may it be, cannot be used exclusively. Yeah. Without yeah. really, if you came to a decision using that tool, I think that there should be a second step of um, kind of like a second signature or authorization on something Hmm. to say, okay, if I look at it via this other tool or strategy um, and emotionally I can still feel comfortable with this decision, then yes, that's when it's helpful. 
a second decision-making matrix to approve the first decision-making matrix? Not another matrix. No. What I would, what I, in, in the improvement world, we talk about like experimentation or, you know, so like if, if we were to say, let's came up, we came up with the decision to accept this job based on our decision matrix we've dissociated or, or let's, let's make it a little bit harder than that. Let's say, we decided based on our, our matrix that we have that we need to terminate somebody who works for us. And, um, you know, there's the one approach is, okay, this is the output. It, you know, the printer, you know, when the old dot matrix printer, this is terminate, you know, you just put a bunch of numbers in and it comes out terminate and you're like, okay, got to terminate them. Well, to test that hypothesis is like, okay, well, what will happen? Is, is to walk through sort of the hypothetical situation. Uh, it printed out that I've got to let Evan to Evan go. Letting Evan go will do what? In the show prep, I said that I think Michael <laughs> should fire me on air for the episode as a... <laughs> Hold on. My printer is going. Let me check. <laughs> it's okay. You've got another year. I've got another year of life or employment. I don't know. It, it, printer's not specific. It just says <laughs> no. Just says another year. year. Another one year. year. <laughs> so I mean, I think testing the hypothesis, like it, I think. So so what I guess I pushed to is 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 thinking. What I like what you said, Evan, is in this dissociative process where you're kind of letting go of some of the personal stuff. Is you're able to to see this as, as you're able to be a little bit more curious about it uh, and start to ask questions and put it through some tests. And then you say, okay, I, you know, I've looked at this file. I've determined using my sort of internal matrix matrices that this is the, that it's time to let Evan go. What does that look like in reality? Who, whom does that affect? How does that affect them? Are there things that I can do organizationally that will help that? And so that's that's taking it to sort of that that next level. But I think, you know, it, and I'll speak for the church world. There's often we don't we're, we're so consumed with all the harm that letting someone go could do mm-hmm. that we never get to that cognitive place to realize that actually for the system it's probably a better decision to to help this person move on to a different career. And so we get entwined, emotionally entwined in the decision-making process. So I think that's where the kind of the dissociation really, really helps. But I think your point, Lindsay, is that it, no decision lives in isolation, especially from emotional and, and personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. See, Lindsay's point is that you need a co-signer if you're going to use a matrix. <laughs> someone who's more, especially if you're a, a three, you need someone who's a little bit more emotionally invested in people. <laughs> yeah you need sense. both and yeah uh, and both as and both and things can be true at the same time as being trained as a social worker for me i always look at things in systems as well and so for me my natural uh leaning is that if i were to make a decision i do what you say, Michael, and think about like, okay, what are the ramifications of this? Um, but also my, the ramifications that I think through, uh, I take out in lots of different webs, like, okay, if this, if we let this person go, what's that going to be like for all the other employees? Are we going to put too much work on them? Um, 
are we going to break the system? Do we have a plan of when we bring somebody else in? Are we reshuffling it? If we let somebody go, depending on when we let them go, is their health insurance going to impact? You know, mm-hmm. are we going to let them go? And then their health insurance is done in two days because it's the end of the month. Or are we going to let them go on the third of the month? So they have their health insurance through the end of the month. Um, she's, she's I mean, I just think about, I want Lindsay to fire me. <laughs> we have to fire me. Get Lindsay to do it. involve get me. Lindsay to do it. <laughs> I I just seen how much um, all like decisions just really wreck havoc on uh, people's personal lives and family systems. And so my inkling is like, can we look at some of that to just make sure that if we let somebody go, we do it in the most loving way possible um and most caring way possible and maybe that's the way that we should look at all um when we let people go and um also we had said like what are some big hard decisions that people make um both firing people or letting them go however you want to phrase it and um breaking up with people ending relationships romantically or friendship wise yeah, those are uh, those are some tough ones. Well, I think as a similar, those are very similar, uh, especially if you're the manager, you know, and mm-hmm. you've got you've had this responsibility. Same way you have responsibility in relation, different different kind of responsibility. Yeah, but there's this level of responsibility in those relationships, and and I think in, I think having external, going back to the to the last step is so if we're building a system here is that we might want to dissociate. Uh, we want to make sure that we have food and that we're, that we're in a good place, a good headspace to make decision. Then we might dissociate uh, a little bit from the problem and try to analyze it a little bit. And that might come back to us with some data. And then we might want to go sort through that data with somebody we trust to mm-hmm. say, okay, it's, it's, I've, I've realized, uh, you know, that, that my relationship with this person is affecting negatively affecting me in these ways and my relationships with my family. And so I've come to the realization that I probably need to break up with them. What then, and then you go and meet with somebody and share that and then let them help you think through, what does that mean? What does it mean to break up with this person? How that's, how's that going to affect you? How's it going to affect your family? Um, both positive and negative, uh, because I think that, you know, we often look at, uh, Particularly when you're letting someone go, we often look at well, what's the negatives that's going to happen. But mm-hmm. but in my experience of of unfortunately, I've had to to let a, a number of individuals go in my career. Is that I found that um, actually letting someone who's who's unhealthy or underperforming or isn't quite the right fit, letting them go actually liberates the system. It frees people in the system to to feel like they're valued, and incidentally, it frees that person. Because if you're stuck in a job where people resent you or or are frustrated with you or dance around you uh, and worried about your emotion, that you feel that and you take that weight of feeling like you're so so I think decision making is it's responsible of us as leaders to think both what are the positive and negatives about making decisions uh, because it because they have both at the same time. Oh well, absolutely. And I think we're getting into one of the things that we really wanted to touch on too, and I think we should just jump right into it and we can come back to some of our other strategies and tools is 
what do we do when part of our factor for our decision is that it's going to cause someone pain? Because I think for some folks, that's not really a huge bearing, right? I'm going to do what I need to do. But then for, for a lot of folks, it's very paralyzing that one side of the division decision is going to cause pain or hurt someone, even if it might be a good decision that we need to come to. A lot of time when there's pain involved, potential pain for us and for other individuals, it sends us into these kind of loops and we kind of dance around on it differently. What is What is your experience been with those kinds of decisions? I, I wonder, are there really any decisions that we make that don't impact or even potentially hurt other people? Because um, none of us ever make decisions in a vacuum. And so every decision we make uh, could hurt somebody um, or could help somebody but just there will be an impact along the way. I, that was my first gut response too, is that pain just is. It, mm-hmm. It's in every decision, someone, every decision, someone will experience some form of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and either or yourself. Disappointment. Yeah, like yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe we, the word pain feels too big. Maybe it's like disappointment. But sadness. I want to. I want to steal your last up last year's last season, whatever the word is. <laughs> this whole idea, or maybe a first season, where you really talk about just emotion is emotion. It's not neither. It's neither bad nor good. And mm-hmm. pain is is an emotion that is mm-hmm. neither bad nor good. It just is. Now it could have the. It it could be symptomatic of something that is wrong. Mm-hmm. But you know when I when I um, did physical therapy today, I felt pain but that pain is helping me also, you know, get over my injury. So um, sometimes peeling, peeling, sometimes pain is required for healing. So, you know, I think if we can't, now, obviously you've listened to us long enough to know that, that Lindsay is going to be far more attuned to someone's pain than I am. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm the callous one in this relationship, but, but, I mean, I think you, you, we can be frozen in trying to avoid pain and in the end, assume that pain, right? We don't want to hurt anybody else. So we're really just to hurt ourselves. And I think it's very true in relationships. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think it's really easy to, to go through life and make the decisions that we want to make because we just do what is going to be the least painful for individuals involved sometimes even the least painful for us i mean we're talking about what do we do when decisions hurt other folks but a lot of the time those decisions are painful for us and we don't make the decisions that we need to to make because we just want to avoid pain now we've referenced some enneagram numbers right uh and so you talked that's just to make us sound like emotionally haughty (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's true but the Enneagram, one of the key tenets of Enneagram seven is that you avoid pain at all costs. I mean, you just, you just don't, you don't want to experience pain and hurt. So you just, you know, make decisions and take actions and do the things that don't create pain and, and friction. And you just kind of jettison it into like a box into the sun whenever you experience it. And so there's an interesting point to review in our lives to say, oh my gosh, what decisions have I made 
just because I wanted to avoid pain that maybe weren't the right decision. And maybe in the moment you feel relief because you don't, you didn't make the decision, so you didn't cause pain. But I think that always, that always comes due. Like it's like a rubber band that just stretches. And so avoidance of pain is not health. Like just because you're not actively experiencing pain doesn't mean that you're healthy. It just means that you're not experiencing pain. And so exercise and physical therapy is a great example. Uh, you know, the, the body, that kind of pain is just so much more evident. But I think we have that mental and emotional pain, too, that we just, it's not worth it to experience it. I don't want to go through that today, so I'm just not going to make this decision. And although it's not the healthy outcome and it's not the right decision necessarily, it's the one that involves the least pain, so I'm going to take the path of least pain to get out of this. So maybe you bottle up your challenges, maybe you bottle up your problems, your stress, and you don't deal with it. And But I, what I have found in life is when it comes back and when that lid gets opened again, it comes back with a lot more force because you can't just truly let things go most of the time. Like you, you always will kind of store up. Like our body is always collecting and our brain is always collecting new information confirming things that we think that we're seeing creating ways that we think the world works and it's not something that you can defer forever uh, and so especially as you get older as i've moved from my 20s into my 30s you know in your 20s i was like oh yeah like you know i don't get in fights with people i don't have problems or friction in relationships so i must be a pretty healthy person then you get into your late 20s and your 30s and some things come back and then that box opens up and things come rushing back and you're like oh, no, I wasn't healthy at the time. That was actually deeply unhealthy. I just didn't have the emotional or spiritual maturity to be able to, like, and the discipline to be able to deal with that pain itself. So I just I just avoid pain, and so I don't want to make decisions that will harm anyone. So that, um, in my experience, has been an interesting thing in the aging process is those kind of emotional tickets that you punch, the IOUs emotionally that then eventually come due, even if you don't think that they do. Yes, it's interesting thinking about sort of the faith construct about decisions that may hurt someone because we can't, it's kind of a tale of two cities. I mean, you know, on one hand, you have a group of, of Christians who who might use phrases like, you know, I've, I've had someone tell me that you don't have faith unless it hurts, which I don't really know what oh, that means, gosh. but. Um, we should just uh, build a list of some of the worst <laughs> statements people say. Yeah. You know, and I know, I know people like uh, uh, who, who stood up at microphones and, and really harmed people they love with their words in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and so there are some who think that faith is, is a tool uh, to, to cause pain because it's in it's somehow uh, people are wrong and they need to be whipped until they're better kind of, you know, mm -hmm. until it stops hurting. And so, so there is that facet. I recognize that, but also there's this facet of the genteel Christian, you know, this uh, that nothing, we should just avoid conflict at all costs um, and that we should never hurt anybody. And so we should always, you know, just sort of dance around their emotional needs and, and, you know, their, their health and those sorts of things. And so it creates all kinds of really interesting, I think that the wrestling between those two kind of identities really creates some interesting faith traditions and experiences that aren't really, I mean, would evidenced in, in scripture. I mean, I think, I think you see, you know, Jesus seems to approach 
individuals with a very sort of uh, a, a very direct approach, right? Um, but also with a sense of grace and and kindness. I think about uh, in particular like the woman at the well story. Uh, Jesus is is in Samaria. He's not supposed to speak to Samaritans because he's a Jew, and Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And and at the time, too, it's a woman and Jewish men or men in that culture at all. And women weren't allowed to speak to each other in public unless they're married. So there's all kinds of cultural things that are amok here. And the woman is coming to the well by herself during the middle of the day, which seems it's odd culturally and, and dangerous. And so there's you walk into a story where you see this person who is completely um, left out of society and in. Jesus has this very interesting conversation about her, her sexual past and her relationships uh, that we, that are not necessarily revealing of her character, but are revealing of her experience. Right. And he, and he approaches it very directly and in the, but, but with some sense of like assurance too, like open welcome assurance that, that everything is going to be okay. Um, and then, and and the whole story goes on that she's completely liberated by this, being heard and understood and not judged, but empowered to make a difference in her life. She runs out into the city and tells the city everything she's ever done, and 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 that and that there's this person who will listen to all everything you've ever done and still love you. I mean, that's basically the message of this this story, which I think is a really healthy kind of approach to decision making from a Christian context, and is that. To, to really sit and listen and understand and make sense of the problem that's at hand, uh, to openly welcome and embrace the person as they are. Um, and that may person may be yourself, incidentally, and then determine what things can I do that will be better for me and for my community. And I think that's basically what we encounter in the story of the woman at the well is that, that kind of perhaps a, a different Christian approach um, to decision-making and, 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 and embracing someone uh, than either of our current models that really exist in, in our culture and in Christianity. Think about just how often in scripture, uh, the way that we would have made decisions. Um, Jesus is kind of saying, let's pause and maybe uh, look at our values of what do we value and how is that going to influence what our next choice is? Uh, that you may have thought this was important, but now I'm telling you this is important. Yeah, I think the uh, the where he draws the line of the sand. So this mm-hmm. this woman is caught in adultery, and by law she you know the matrix is decision matrix has put out that she must be stoned to death. That's what the printer puts out, and. Uh, and so she's she's there in the middle of this crowd and all of them have stones and ready to just just to kill her. And that's their responsibility as a community, because that's what the the printer put out is that the decision matrix said you're guilty and you have to be put to death. It's what the law says. What we got to do. And and Jesus stops the system and draws a line in the sand and says, OK, go ahead. This is absolutely the right decision. And whoever has never committed a sin you're the one you you throw the first stone as the story goes and and all we hear is the dropping of stones and people walking away and so that's a, it's a very interesting way of saying you know i think a dissociating the scenario 
from the data and, you know, and looking at it and then, and then turning it around and saying, okay, how does this affect people? If we do this decision, how's it going to affect the system and the community? And Jesus kind of like radically changes people's opinions about what they decided to do. Well, that's a, a great segue into two of our next decision-making strategies or tools. Uh, and I think they really relate to how Jesus approached decision-making and how he answered uh, a lot of questions. Uh, and so our next tool is a, a practice called, and I'm going to try and get this right, called synectics. S-Y-N-E-C-T-I-C-S. That's how you spell it. So anybody who's really well-versed in the practice and theory of synectics is like, I can't wait for this because he didn't even pronounce it right. So this is going to be great. We can trust his opinion. So synectics dates back to the 50s. Uh, there were two dudes, uh, last names Prince and Gordon, and then a guy named uh, Little, uh, kind of all worked together and came up with this synectics as a means of applied creativity. And so the question was, how do we apply creativity to specific problems or challenges. Uh, because it seems like the, the logic part of our brain can only get us so far. And at some point we need to shake things up when we hit a stall because we need to find a way to apply the creative energy and curiosity and our real power as humans is to be creative. Uh, so how do we apply that to decisions? And so synectics is the means of using external stimuli in order to articulate a problem and how it relates. Uh, so for example, a synectic exercise would be that there's programs that you can go into where they'll just show random pictures, okay? And so you just click and it pops up a random picture and you have to describe how that picture relates to the decision or the challenge that you need to make. Or you can use a piece of art in a room or something that you can see around you. Like if you're on a walk, how does this dog barking at the mail truck make and influence my decision. Like, how does my decision relate to a dog barking at a mail truck, right? So my decision to break up with my girlfriend, I need to look at, I could, this this theory would say, let's look at pictures of NFL players and dogs and kittens and cars. And that something about looking at those images might trigger some creativity or curiosity in solving whether or not my decision about breaking up with my girlfriend. I don't have yes. a girlfriend, just just for the record. I just and I mean I do. To, that's and, good. I'm married, I'm married to my girlfriend, I should say. But <laughs> but you have to talk about this. You have to talk about how that like and you can't just think it. Like you're the part of the practice is that you're encouraged to vocalize it. Like you're supposed mm -hmm. to say it out loud because it gets it outside of your brain. Because we get in these kind of ruminating loops, especially when it comes to decision making. And but we don't do anything to unhinge that. So, I mean, if the train is on a track going around a Christmas tree, right? Like a little Christmas train. If you don't put new track down, it's only ever going to go in a loop. So we have to think about doing things and posturing ourselves in intentional ways that kind of lay new track to kind of get our brain on a different path to be able to see what else could be. Uh, and I think that this is a really interesting practice because I think it emulates a lot of what Jesus did. Because when Jesus was asked really tough questions, he often answered with a story or a parable, right? 
Jesus, how do I get into heaven? Well, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. And then he tells a story about the kingdom of God that then we can interact with. It has moving pieces. It's relatable, right? But he didn't give like always, he didn't give like a five-step plan necessarily. Now, some people would say that he did, and there's cases where he's a little more prescriptive. But a lot of the time, it's a way more organic process that he used to even answer the questions and the tough ones that people asked. So I think that's Synetics, in a lot of ways, taps into that too. What is something unrelated? How do I articulate and create an analogy that gives me a safe place to be able to interact with some of the more complex pieces of this decision or challenge or problem that I'm facing? I, I mean, I think that taps into our, our practice from helping organizations. One of the phrases we've coined as an organization is we, we spend a lot of time as people as individuals and as organizations being critical. We're, we, we have, we're really good at offering critique. And so what one of the things that blocks us from being creative and finding alternative solutions is that we're, 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 we're overly critical about the scenario. And so we try to move people from critique to curiosity, which, mm-hmm. which has a very similar, they're very, they're like cousins, you know, like to the difference is like, I don't like this microphone. It's not working. I'm going to get rid of it. This microphone is terrible to why is it this microphone working the way I want it? What am I really looking for? What do I really need? So there's just this sort of slight variation about the way you move from critique to curiosity. But what we've experienced in our organization is we help people move to that more curious by asking questions, by by looking at data from different perspectives, by asking outside sources to look at the organization or the individual, that that creates this this uh, community of curiosity where people start asking more questions than they than they are critiquing the system, and in that process allows them to come to more creative solutions or potential outcomes that they never thought they could when they were busy analyzing what's wrong with things. Mm. I love thinking about that concept of moving from critique to curiosity. I'm going to sit in that a while today. It's one of our, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I, I especially have become for my own self and my own personal relationships too. Like, I think we've talked a little bit about this and like, you know, in our family systems, uh, people have certain things they think or frameworks or values that they operate out of. And I think I have spent most of my life being critical of those who have different values and systems and thoughts than I do. And I haven't spent a lot of time being curious about why. Hmm. Why does my cousin who had a very similar upbringing to me have vastly different geopolitical worldviews or views on sexuality or any kind of these big, you know, immigration or whatever these, especially those hot topics that sometimes can really disrupt family systems and Thanksgiving and Christmas and that sort of stuff. But I have found that like, I'm still critical. (laughs) Just, But if I can also ask the question, I wonder why my neighbor thinks that as opposed to just saying, I can't believe my neighbor thinks that. Mm-hmm. It's a slight difference, mm-hmm. but I think it's a pretty significant one well, for me that's emotionally. A, a really great teaser too, because that's what our next episode is about. Critique to curiosity and how to have relationships with those who are radically different than us. 
did I know that? I, you might have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great teaser. I mean, so- you you knew it at one point uh, that that's what was coming up. But I mean, I really love how, you know, we segued right into it without you even trying to. Perfect see, teaser. I'm, I'm like a golden doodle. I mean, the next human I see, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Well, I'll, well, I'll quick because we're, we're, we're wrapping up our time here. I'm just going to rapid fire and get some quick thoughts on the, our three, our two remaining kind of strategy decision-making tools, uh, and then toss out a couple church ones uh, that we can talk about, and we're going to wrap it up real quick. You guys are like, it's not possible. Here we go. Okay. I'm just thinking I've never heard Evan use a list before, so this is like, <laughs> this is great. Go, go. Go. Did you think about how much that decision to say that would cause pain? Uh, okay, I, no, so I didn't. <laughs> it, it didn't, uh, and if it did, I'd run away from it anyways. Okay, so uh, values and stack ranking is another decision-making tool. So essentially, you list the things that you value, and you stack them, and you rank them in an order, kind of similar to the tool that Lindsay you talked about from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also stack rank outcomes or like sub outcomes of a challenge or a problem. You can do it individually, right? You you get them all out discreetly. And then you rank the order that they're important to you. Uh, and then you start to see how certain things are going to happen. So there's trade-offs, right? So everything in life, decision-making-wise, almost always involves a trade-off. Uh, so you have to understand what the trade-offs are uh, and then recognize that you're not going to be able to generally achieve every outcome that you want. So not cause anyone pain, right? Like that, that is an outcome that you could choose, but oftentimes we're not going to arrive at good or healthy decisions if we elevate that too high. So when you put it really high and then you see all the things that actually need to happen below it, you have to realize, okay, great, I need to rearrange these ranking things. This can also be really helpful for group decision making. Um, I think where you go out to eat is a great, great, great value. Always practice stack rank my values when the group's trying to figure out where to eat. Right. You just (laughs) list you list five restaurants and everybody ranks them like ranks choice, one, two, three, four, five. And then you just apply a number and you see where everybody wants to go to dinner. And it's a great way to practice some more complex organizational decision-making based on values. I think it's a great tool, especially pro-con lists. So a lot of people will make pro-con lists when trying to make a decision. Emily, my wife, loves a pro-con list. So I have a whiteboard up. And you might have 17 con lists, 17 items on your con list and only five on the pro list. But when you value stack those elements and you realize, okay, there's 17 things that are, but they're minuscule. They're in, in comparison to those pro items. And so, or vice versa, it could go either way. So I think it's important to move a pro con list into also some kind of ranking and understanding the value where those cons or pro items fit into your value system. So I think it's a great tool for that. Here's another add-on. If you're a pro con list person, like that is what you do. You love pro con list. When you come down to it, that's like your that's your go-to. That's your your the one you want. Um, I would encourage all of our pro con list people to also start and try to make a benefit effort list. Um, so a benefit effort list is really really similar to a pro con list, but you break out what the actual benefit is compared to the energy you have to expend to make it happen. Um, and the benefit effort list combined with a pro con list is really interesting because 
even though there may be a pro that exists, the energy and effort required to actually make it happen might not be worth it. And so it creates an external tool for you to realize, okay, is this benefit really worth it for the amount of energy that I'm going to have to expend to make this happen? And it can be really liberating to kind of break up some of the stalls that can happen in pro-con lists where you're just looking at amount of one or the other. It's a, it's a kind of next level tool. So I would advise uh, trying that, especially with work teams. But I think personally, a benefit effort list is, is, really, is really, really helpful. All right, here we go. Our next one, sketching. That's right. Sketching is a uh, researched and proven helpful decision-making tool. Now, you can either get a coloring book, you can draw, you don't even have to be good at drawing, but having to externalize your challenge. Now, you can sketch out a system, right? You can draw boxes, you can make a flow chart, you can do all sorts of different things, but using applied creativity to approach the decision or the challenge is something that has been shown to be consistently helpful to be able to articulate and externalize your ideas. There's something about having to write it down and then something about looking at it visually that tends to kind of unlock us when we're stuck. Thoughts on sketching? I use it all the time with my clients. I think um, particularly around, so when you're looking at a person who's in, encountered some kind of issue at work, uh, it's usually revolves or it's all systemic, right? I mean, there's, they play into that system, but I have them draw the system out and we try to figure out what's the pinch point, what's causing the problem in the system that you're experiencing. And I have found it to be an incredibly beneficial tool, uh, especially for people who, who spend a lot of time in their head and uh, in, in to, to try to put it onto paper in some kind of format that makes sense to them. And it gives me a great tool too, to ask questions. So if you're, if you're accompanying someone on a decision-making journey, you might ask them, say, hey, why don't you just draw this out? Like, what does this look like drawn out on a piece of paper? Because then you get to ask questions. Well, what does this circle with this dot on it mean? And it means something to them. And then they have to explain it. So it's a great tool for getting that conversation started. It helps for people that aren't uh, step one, step two, step three people mm -hmm. um, that they can better articulate um, and kind of even figure out what goes into the next uh, step that way. Perfect. And our last two decision-making tools are straight from the Bible. Okay. The first one is from I, Judges. I love that you have said there's two more now three times. Well, this is our Christianese one. This is the last thing. Okay. I'm landing the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is not your captain. But, <laughs> but I'm landing the plane anyway. But I'm landing the plane. <laughs> okay. In Judges, we learned about Gideon. Gideon had a tough decision that he needed to make. And what Gideon did was he questioned God. And a lot of the time, I don't think that we do this enough. And Gideon put out a fleece, right? A blanket, essentially, and said, hey, God, if this is what you want me to do, make all of the ground wet and the blanket really dry. And the morning when I wake up, if that's the case, then we'll be good. Um, and so then he does, and then God does what Gideon asked. And Gideon goes, and this is, I've, this is one of the things that I relate to most in Scripture. So he asked essentially for this crazy, miraculous thing to happen, and it happened, and Gideon goes, eh, maybe that's not it. Let's try it again just to be sure. <laughs> So then he does the inverse. He's like, oh, you know, that's the scientific method, right? Right there in Gideon. And he goes, okay, great. Now I'm going to put the blanket out and I want the blanket to be soaked, but I want the rest of the grass to be dry. And, uh, and then 
He does, and then God confirms it again, and then he goes into his decision with some confidence. Now, if you read the rest of Judges, things aren't necessarily easy for Gideon, but I think we discount the fact that God did and does work in our lives like that, uh, where we it is perfectly acceptable as a believer to put something out and test it. Um, and some Christian cultures, they call it fleecing it, right? Like if you have a friend who has a tough decision, we're like, oh, well, why don't you fleece it, right? Like put yourself in a posture of prayer, it's um, it's more popular and more like charismatic Christian cultures. Um, so you you basically put it out there, uh, and then you put yourself in a posture of prayer to live your life in a way to look for God to speak to you about a specific decision, uh, and you look for confirmation in those things. And I think that uh, if we believe that Holy Spirit is real and that He speaks to us, I would encourage all of you to try that as an experience when it comes to decision making. So give it a shot, fleece it, see what it is. And our last decision making tool is casting. Let me just lots. say, can, uh, hold on, just a second. Oh. Let me just just push a little bit and say that it's not. I, I think I think you're. I think. That approach is a really valuable approach in in discernment making, but we also it may not it may not look like putting a fleece out and telling it to be dry in the morning. It may be that you I have it's kind of what we talked about the sounding board when I when I'm working with someone who says they feel called to ministry. That's a great example to me about okay that there there's a lot of emotion and and feeling that's involved in that journey. What I want you to do is go test it. I want you to 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 practice being in ministry and then talk to people around you and see and test it, see if other people have that same kind of sense about you and your work and your calling. And I guess that might, that would be how I would see this manifesting itself in our life on kind of a regular scale rather than a, um, a sort of supernatural scale uh, as, as, as Gideon's story shares. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, especially the extended time frame. You know, I mean, there yeah. like there's a a lot of time, and one thing is that we believe is that God is consistent. So, if God is consistent, then we want to understand what that means, and then we want to live into God's consistency. Because as people, we are inherently not consistent. Um, we're consistent in our stubbornness a lot of the time. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm with you there. Our final one is casting lots. What do you guys think about casting lots as a decision-making tool? Work for Matthew. Rolling so. some dice and then seeing what, what happens. I mean, it's it's how decisions were made in Scripture. Like a lot of the early church stuff, some of the most impactful early church things were done by casting lots. That's in Scripture. What do we do with it? Should we roll dice more? Uh, I mean, I think sometimes it uh, cheapens the decision, it feels like. <laughs> um that it's in some ways it's like refusing to make the hard decision ourselves. So we're just putting it elsewhere. So if I could reframe it into a tool, I mean, I think, yes, I agree. Let me just say yes. And uh, thinking about the idea of casting lots, um, we worked with an organization with uh, about a thousand people and they were trying to work through a really hard decision process. And the leadership team was just consumed with sort of projecting what they thought the thousand people thought. And they were making decisions based on what they thought the thousand people thought. Now, if you can imagine five people trying to make decisions for a thousand people without actually asking the thousand people what they thought. So what we proposed in this particular situation was let's cast lots. Let's do some polling, some, some, you know, non-decision-making polling. Let's understand what are the thousand people thinking about these different outcomes, these potential 
outcomes. And we did that and, and it blew everyone away because they actually had real hard data about what people were thinking about these issues, which allowed the leadership team to make an, a more informed decision and a decision that was informed by the thousand people. And that meant that thousand people felt like they had buy-in. So I think there are ways to practice, and incidentally, this isn't a religious organization, that, that I think there are ways to cast lots as another form of data point to help you make informed decisions. I love it. I love it. Well, it's in the good book, so we had to talk about it. Uh, well, that concludes all of our uh, decision-making strategies and some more practical decision-making steps in this episode. Uh, so we are uh, hopeful that you are doing well, that you enjoyed it, uh, that season three has found you and your uh, family doing well, and that um, you uh, are uh, enjoying the episodes. We're really enjoying season three and uh, enjoying where we're headed. Uh, just so you know, just a quick reminder, we're going to talk about critiqued curiosity and how that relates to being in relationships with those who are different or radically different than us. I think uh, in-laws and family relationships are, are a great example of some of that. So you can look forward to that episode uh, coming up uh, for our next recording. Uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to this. And thanks for Justin Patton for producing this and doing all the music. Lindsay, Michael, anything to say? to the people as we depart i'm, I'm excited decide. about oh. the next episode that i'm gonna i'm still thinking about critique to curiosity and how i can even be more open to the way that other people make decisions i hope you decide to listen to the next episode i hope when you put all this in your decision matrix that your dot matrix printer comes out and says listen to episode three Awesome. Thanks, everyone. And have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.